0: a Lakota citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe of South Dakota. They are a banner-waving survivor, two-spirit feminist, indigenous rights activist, and a published and award-winning storyteller for outlets like Everyday Feminism, Feminist Humanist Alliance, Native People's Magazine, and Indian Country Today. Tate uses their 15 years of experience working for daily newspapers, social justice organizations, and tribal education systems to organize students and professionals around issues of critical cultural competency, anti-racism, anti-bias, and inclusive community building. We speak with Tate today about their work in using storytelling and art to create social change. Welcome, Tate. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You're, I believe, the first Indigenous woman that has been on our show, and you're a multimedia artist. So I'm really excited to talk to you about all the things that you're doing, not just from an art perspective and creativity perspective, but also from activism perspective. Let's get into it. I first came to you through our mutual friend, Karen, because you have a story in her book called Fierce, Essays by and About Dauntless Women. And I read your origin story. And I was wondering maybe if we could just start there in terms of your childhood and your biography and your journey to become basically an indigenous feminist woman.
1: Right. So I think it's good to start at uh, where I'm at right now with my identities I use the pronouns they, them. And so um, uh, while I do fastly identify in in the feminine ways, I'm also two-spirit within my uh, indigenous communities. I have an active role to play with healing work, uh, the activism work you mentioned, um, education. uh, And that's a role built into what it is to be two-spirit, which... In a very easy way to describe it is sort of an umbrella term for a, a, a queer indigenous person. And so it's uh, rather than having all the alphabets go on, uh, which I also identify as bisexual within that framework. Uh, but Two-Spirit encompasses every part of my identity from mother, partner, and that educator activist healing role that I also take on.
0: So actually, I was going to ask you about Two-Spirit. Is that a term that preexisted any kind of terms that we have in the American vernacular around gender identity? Is that something that was already part of the indigenous community? Native communities had that term because the concept existed first? That's a great question. So the
1: term is, I mean, two-spirit, that's English. So that's very much colonizer words used there. The concept, though, predates colonialism. Uh, But to talk about two-spirit itself, that was a term indigenous folks came up with in 1990 so it's actually pretty young in terms of you know how how we've been talking about gender and sexuality in this country uh two-spirit just came about in 1990 and it was done so because indigenous queers felt like the space the spaces that were being centered on lgbtq plus plus folks didn't meet the needs that they were facing as indigenous people who are also queer. And this is sort of, you can, you can um, mirror this experience with say, indigenous feminism too. So in the way that um, feminism will often say forget, whether intentionally or not, some of the issues that indigenous women are facing, so too did the LGBTQ community uh, forget or ignore, or even just erase the indigenous queer uh, experiences. So one way we felt we needed to recenter that, and then I was only seven in 1990, so I wasn't there yet. But one of the ways those folks um, were able to center themselves is to say, well, the concepts within LGBTQ scholarship have been around since time immemorial for many tribes uh, that were part of this nation or part of this continent, I apologize, prior to colonization. So keep in mind, there are 573 federally recognized tribes out there right now. Federally recognized meaning the government acknowledges a nation to nation relationship, much the same way it would recognize, say, um, Cuba or... um, Any other country, so that that's that's one thing. Prior to colonization, there were thousands of tribes, though, um, just within the place that we currently call the United States. A lot of those tribes had understandings of gender and sexuality that went beyond the binary that is so often used in uh, Western um, Western ideologies. So, take Lakota, and that's my my tribal affiliation. I'm a citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe of South Dakota, and our people, my people, uh, had several <laughs> understandings of um, gender that uh, went beyond just that man-woman and, and the roles that, you know, are often placed upon those people. So, you know, trans, non-binary, bisexual, um, really whatever you could come up with. There were there were places for those folks. And again, we, we put ourselves in a lot of boxes. I think what's pretty neat about the, the place we're in just as a, just, you know, as a, as a community, you know, within queer communities is we're expanding and exploring our language and how, you know, different things, how we identify is constantly changing. So, uh, you know, myself, I had no idea, you know, when I came out at 16 that bisexual was a, was a word I could even use. I just knew I liked a girl at the time. I also like boys, but because I liked a girl, did that just make me a lesbian then? And did I have to wear that, you know, that hat? And so, um, you know, exploring gender and sexuality in college, you know, in terms of that um, you know, scholarship and how I would identify within within those communities, um, you know, bisexual came to me. And then later as I'm exploring my my indigenous self, um, and how gender and sexuality fits within that framework, Two-Spirit came along. And so, yeah, to answer your question, uh, again, Two-Spirit as a term is very young, but the concept it's based upon or the concepts it's based upon predate colonization and are part of every origin story you could really
0: think to ask any Indigenous nation. Within the Indigenous community and in the, the oral language, are there terms to describe like what what we have now i i, I don't know if th- i think this is the most recent the gender unicorn where you have differences between gender identity gender expression and presentation the sex assigned at birth and who you're sexually attracted to and or remo- emotionally and romantically attracted to like there's i believe five distinctions now and so are sure. there that level of distinctions or is it more fluid and complicated and not as I th-
1: yeah i think it's actually it's a lot more simplified you know we didn't <laughs> not being there, I can't speak for everybody. But, uh, you know, when I when we talk to elders and we talk to folks who are able to hold on to the our histories, um, the words that were used, a lot of them aren't gendered. In Lakota, we did because there were so many reasons to have specific roles. And the fact that we were constantly working alongside or against even other tribal nations. So we needed to have ways to identify ourselves. But a lot of the, you know, the, the words we're coming up with now or because we force people to fit into boxes, right? What do you mean you're not a man or a woman? What does that mean? How come it's they them, What's they them? Right? And and we get kind of defensive almost like it doesn't fit into my 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 world and my concepts that I've been that I've grown up with. And so that, that makes us uncomfortable. And, and so we need to fit people in places. I think with native nations, you know, pre colonialism, there wasn't that need really. It was uh, very much just an accepted place of humanity. <laughs> just existing, right, was enough. And, um, the role that you could play if it was different. I mean, I, th- I think, um, you know, the idea of say strength based, uh, existence was definitely in use, right? So someone who is two spirit, uh, somebody who had, um, was able to see beyond, um, so you mentioned words, uh, one of the words that's used in Lakota for, um, it, it's off, it's say the probably the most commonly used term for like someone who's queer is wink day. It's, um, Actual translation is woman-man. Win is the feminine. Te is the man. And that's mostly used for a person who is masculine, but with feminine traits. So it could be anyone from a, a trans woman to a gender nonconforming, more masculine presenting person. Uh, and, and some women do um, hold, that ro- hold that word as, as their own too. But again, as we explore language a little bit more, and as we are able to say, uncover stories that were buried in the uh, avalanche of colonialism and genocide and boarding schools and assimilation. We've come with, um, there's a term called the wiawitko, which I I love, and it would be um, the term I would use for myself, and it translates to crazy woman. And crazy is colonial understanding, right, is insane, and that's more of like a mental distinction. Crazy, though, at least when we talk about Witko, so that's that term. Witko is, is more of like someone who can see beyond, someone who isn't in a box, someone, you know, we can trust to make clear things that are cloudy. And I think that's really beautiful. So we had a leader in Lakota, his name was Crazy Horse, Tashunko Witko. And he was given the name well into his adulthood after people recognized that You know, he was just this fantastic military strategist, able to take down Seventh Cavalry with Custer at the lead, and 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 so that Witko name, that Witko term, is uh, very powerful. And so uh, when when elders were say looking at, you know, how can we use different words, you know, now that we um, are trying to translate English to Lakota or Lakota to English, you know, and we have terms like unicorn or something like that, how can we use Lakota to better identify, you know, within the frameworks we have now. And indigenous cultures are nothing if not extremely pliable and fluid just in general. So, you know, the, the fact that we didn't have, say, written language is often seen as a drawback. But really, when you look at the usefulness of not having things written down and, and canonized and, you know, for all time, it really allowed for uh, some really great evolutionary ideologies to come forth. Um, things change and, you know, same
0: goes with language and that's, you know, kind of what we see now within say queer communities. And so because of that fluidity, uh, within the indigenous community, would you say that, would you be able to characterize the indigenous community as being more open and accepting of queer folks compared to white folks?
1: I wish I could say that. So I mentioned that avalanche of colonialism and genocide, um, So there was a lot of efforts made on a systemic level from U.S. government, uh, state governments, pretty much anyone that wanted our lands, indigenous lands, to uh, wipe out anything that was indigenous. Um, Boarding schools were one of the, I think, the most effective players in that goal. Uh, Boarding schools came about late 1800s, mid-1800s. Uh, around the height of the Indian Wars, and it was really just a place to have child hostages of Indigenous nations. We have your kids, and if you don't play by the rules, don't play by our rules. Uh, well, you know, we could kill them, or you know, take them, you know, adopt them out, which was often done. And those places were often run by um, first were run by military units. So Carlisle Indian School um, in the East Coast is, is one of our one of the most pop not popular one of the most well known boarding schools it was the place where um the kill the indian save the man term was coined but that was literally what they were trying to do with these schools kill the indian kill everything that is, is our identity kill these words like you know we weco or or wink day you know kill these concepts uh of of queerness and or or just you know femininity and all this this matriarchal societies um that were extremely strong and well organized before before uh, colonialism took over um, and patriarchy within that. So when you have, you know, my mother, for instance, is a boarding school survivor. Um, And so she's, I'm only one generation removed from those places. Um, You know, and and folks who went through boarding schools um, will often tell you, um, you know, if we spoke our native language, we were beat and hit. And so the survivor in in our ancestors and our relatives was, well, you don't speak native then. Uh, you don't speak your tribal language. You 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 agree with what's being uh, forced, you know, into your brain, um, and a lot of that was, um, you know, Christian Protestant-based concepts of sex and gender, uh, and so a lot of our teachings were lost and replaced with uh, colonizer mindsets. So, um, up until very recently, uh, with even the last year, native. Tribal communities so those 573 tribes I mentioned there's only about 350 or so that have actual land or what we call reservations so like they operate off their own land base um, so those other say 150 don't have you know a place where um, you know government is is um, run um, and so Native nations were the only communities in the United States that queer folks couldn't have a legal gay marriage. So, uh, you know, when, when gay marriage was passed and celebrated, you know, throughout the United States, a lot of Native nations were like, great, but what if I wanted to get married in my own land? I, I can't do that unless our tribal governments passed those resolutions. So there were lots of fights within Native communities to have their tribal councils um, passed those uh, laws, and it really wasn't happening until very, very recently. Um, I don't have that date with me right now, but um, uh, I know um, Pine Ridge as a, for instance, the Oglala Lakota, so um, Cheyenne River, where I'm a citizen of, that's South Dakota, so is um, Pine Ridge, and uh, their community, I think it was maybe five years ago or so, had a big, I would say like Identity crisis is a good word for it because a lot of elders came down on a very homophobic level against uh, lots of uh, queer natives. You can't be here. Um, we don't want you here. We don't want you in our government. We don't. Um, we don't support you. And it was it was huge, um, especially for a lot of uh, younger natives, just in general. Because just to give your listeners an idea, roughly eighty percent of all folks who claim Native identity, say, in the census. So that's, I'll say, 5.2 million-ish back in 2010. 80% of those folks live in urban areas. So when you talk about a community like Pine Ridge, which is pretty small when you compare it to really any other city, even in rural areas, a concept, you know, homophobia, you know, it, it spreads like wildfire, and those ideas do too. And so it's a very unsafe space to be Native youth having the highest rates of suicide, and then compound that with, say, Native queer youth have even the highest rates of suicide. So this was a really big deal for a lot of us who advocate for queer issues, especially within Indigenous communities. Um, and so myself and several other folks came through with letters that went statewide, and we tried to rally other tribes to um, back away from this ho- these homophobic notions, transphobic notions. And um, I wouldn't say we were super successful, except that just you know, within the last year, the Oglala Lakota Nation did finally pass a resolution uh, allowing um, you know gay, lesbian marriage and queer marriage, if you will, the umbrella marriage. Um, and and that's huge step for us. And and it came far later than say the the national discussion of of gay marriage. So um, yeah, to say that it's you know more accepting, I think within certain spaces it is. Like for myself. You know, I think of my first coming out was pretty traumatic. And this is in North Dakota, which firmly believes in conversion therapy. But um, and so that wasn't a good place for me to be exploring those parts of my identity. However, in college, when I was able to get back to um, my 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 traditions and, um, you know, go explore and be participant in sacred ceremonies like Sundance or Anipi, those elders were extremely supportive. And those are the folks that really help guide me to where I'm at right now. And that, that two-spirit framework of responsibility, it's not just a title I wear because I'm queer. It's a title I'm able to wear because I work for it. And because I'm honored with it, right? Like I could easily say I'm queer and not two-spirit. And a lot of natives do, right? They don't identify as two-spirit for whatever reason. But a big part of that is often because of the role and responsibility that comes with that. So certain spaces for sure are a lot more accepting. And especially when you dig back into like the histories of the tribal nations, I think that's probably the most accepting space for a queer indigenous person is to go back into their traditions and
0: find those words or find those stories that represent them because they're there. So is there a difference between those native who are living in urban settings, like you said, and those who are living in reservations? Like, the ones who are on reservations, are they, because of their being closer to the culture in some ways, and literally on the land, like, are they more woke in some ways because they're, they're actively trying to preserve the culture and tradition versus those who've kind of left?
1: I think in some ways they are, but just remember that it was those folks on the reservation in Pine Ridge who were the homophobic, transphobic ones. Right. Um, you know so that that's a hard dichotomy and, for me to right. you know, sort of reconcile yeah so it's a great question though because i mean we ask that's that same question within our own indigenous spaces and i would say yeah there's a huge difference i think that difference is self-made though i think um a lot of that stems from you know access to resources um, the privilege that urban Natives would have over, res- you know, reservation Natives. Um, myself, for instance, uh, I live in Phoenix, Arizona, and it's the largest urban population of Natives in the country. Tons of tribes are here. It's the traditional homelands of the Ottama and Pipash folks, who I have the privilege of working for. And that's something that gives me, you know, cross the street access to, you know, Indian Health Service, And just to use that as the example, if I go home to my reservation and need health care, there is an Indian Health Service hospital, but I wouldn't be able to give birth there. There is no birthing center there. A grocery store would be something and have to go miles and miles and miles away if I wanted the fresh fruits and vegetables. There are communities that do have, say, um, like food marts and stuff. But when I was growing up, there was a gas station and there was nothing more than that. I didn't even know what a mango was until college. You know, and those are things that just healthcare in general, right? Like just take that one example. And there's a huge divide, access to mental health care. A cousin of mine recently had uh, her son, you know, wanting to harm himself. And he had to be driven four hours away to the nearest um, mental health um, inpatient services. She couldn't get off work and had to come later. And then the court took him away (laughs) because she couldn't get there to sign paperwork, right? So there's some like massive um, disparities that reservation natives face versus someone like me who wouldn't have that problem. I wouldn't have to worry about that problem. I have the privilege of not having to worry about it.
0: So with your, you said this is your cousin? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So did she live on a reservation? Mm -hmm. That's my my, my tribe. But then why, where she brought her son to, why do they have jurisdiction to take him away? Was it the tribe, tribal court? That did that? No, we, we we are
1: subject to federal government. So, um, because it's a nation to nation, um, we, we have to follow the same rules if we go like if I go to France and, you know, step out of line and get arrested, I still have to follow those rules. So this much the same way for natives in in the United States. So she goes to or her son is taken to um an inpatient service and um admitted and she only has you know, however many hours to get there before her child is considered abandoned. And that's the the rule of, say, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And that's where that
0: was. I see.
1: So she still has to follow that. It doesn't matter right? to them where she's at. Uh, she still has... She still has to abide by those laws. And it's unfair. It's totally unfair. But it's happens so often, Um, too often. Uh, South Dakota, just as a byway, uh, has the highest uh, rate of natives in foster care. It's roughly um, latest stats, I think, where uh, native children are roughly 8% of the South Dakota population, but up to almost like more than 50% of the foster care kids or, or even more than that. I'd have to look that up, but it's it's definitely over half, and um, big part of that is because those laws are are in place, right? If I can take a kid away because their parent can't get there for whatever reason, and then there's a forty eight hour hold automatically. Uh, I mean that there's money in there too. Of anyway, course, that's yeah. a total byproduct. But so going back to the question about like the reservation, so I would say. I grew up living, you know, with my mother's family. My mother is um the the native half of me. So I've, my father is Irish from <laughs> from the Brooklyn people. Um he's uh, he was raised in Queens. So um the but he he moved out and that's how he met my mother uh and the, on the reservation. So we were we I was in in immersed with my family. We I had um, several cousins and aunties who I had no idea were called cousins or aunties. I just assumed they were, you know, extensions of my mom and dad and my siblings. And, uh, it, it was, um, a shock to me to hear that they weren't that later in life. And, um, that, and that, that comes with a set of privileges that I, I miss, right. Having family, have growing up knowing that I'd be taken care of, you know, no matter who I, whoever I was, was, was amazing. And, uh, that, that's something I'd love to return back to. Um, you can't do that in Phoenix. <laughs> I don't have any family here. I'm definitely, you mentioned land and being on the land. There are ceremonies I can't participate in because I'm not home. Uh, there's, um, you know, uh, medicines that I'm not able to collect because they don't grow here. And so that's, that's hard for sure. And so, um, you know, when, uh, when it comes to like the leaders of our people, I, I personally defer to those who are land based say on our reservation. Um they they often um have a better grasp I think on uh what's needed to continue at least the better parts of our cultures, right? Cuz no culture was perfect, but I think um you know in my delve scholastically into our our histories and and stories that um we, we had a pretty great uh way of living. Uh, and and I think Uh, the folks that are still home and still working to um, reclaim that uh, are doing the good work. And uh, I'm just out here sort of surviving. So.
0: Mm. Well, you're doing a lot. And I want to return to this um, part of your identity as an artist and and as a storyteller, you briefly touched upon how Native storytelling is oral and why that is. But I, I want to read a part of your story in Fierce, where you quote Danielle Smith uh, from Native Daughters, and there's a part in this where she talks about the concept of life and the fertility goddesses and mothers. So I'm just going to read from it directly. According to Philomene Lakota, the Lakota word for the tree of life is also used to refer to women. The word for the principal male translates to the mouth of the tree of life. In other words, the male was intended to be the mouth of the woman, not to control her. And Philomene Lakota said, that is one thing that has been lost in the culture. So it's been lost, as you stated. I guess I'm still grappling with the concept. Like if Native, if Indigenous people are so clear about the fact that they are, have been and continue to be, Colonized, and that there's this ongoing uh, attempt at genocide in all of these different policies that still persist. How is this still a byproduct that they hold on to, this colonialization byproduct?
1: So, are asking why we still have those colonial
0: mindsets? Well, yeah, as, 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 as with regard to, for example, the concept of controlling women and violence, like violence, you, you stated earlier, it was a Uh, Indigenous cultures are matriarchal, and I've heard uh, and read that violence, um, or the way at least that it's enacted now in terms of violence against women and and the power and control aspect of it didn't really exist. There might be violence in terms of both sides trying to assert their power, but it wasn't this domination that is... um, playing out, you know, in these different relationships now. So I'm wondering, how is right. it that I, there's I this it. consciousness and yet it continues and there's no sort of resolution?
1: Well, colonialism is a hell of a drug. Um, the, I think the short answer is we're in a society that benefits men, uh, regardless of, you know, the, the color of their skin. And, and that goes for Native men. We're, we're still... Figuring that out, um, you know, I, I, I think that's a question we we're always going to ask ourselves until I mean, and and really, I think there's this idea of decolonization, and I think it's a great goal to strive for, but I'm not sure how realistic true decolonization is because decolonization is, you know, completely. Ripping out the 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 weed of decolonization, this this unuseful, totally um, um, malevolent force that has completely destroyed native lives, and yet we depend on it. We're we're part of that system now. You know, a lot of us have jobs and need healthcare and pay taxes, and you know we, that that's hard to get out of when no one else around you is trying to get out of it too. I will say this though: there's lots of pockets of of individuals who I think are doing the decolonization thing pretty rad. Um, wherein, you know, they're totally living off the grid. Um, they, they, you know, they have extreme, um, uh, extremely um, not complicated, but extremely well, well built, I guess, is the best I can come up with um, like yurt structures for their housing, you know, wind and solar energy and hydro energy. Um, and it's amazing to see, um, but they they've completely had to, go off on their own because they I mean very little grants exist to do that just as a single family. Um, and a lot of uh tribes didn't want to support it either because it doesn't benefit them, right? They they need the government resources and this, you know, this the grants for police or schools that we depend on and that's those tribal those treaties that we um, signed way back when. So getting out of colonialism, we need others to do that too. Um, you know, I mentioned before there's rough I would say the, You know, obviously the number is going to grow in this next census count, but roughly 5.2 ish or five and a half million folks identify as native. That's that's not a lot of people. And those folks try, you know, if every single one of us were trying to or could decolonize, we still have however many hundreds of millions of people to contend with around us. And that system, I mean, again, benefits white men and the violence they do, whether that's violence towards women or violence towards the land. And that's a really hard place to be. I think we're trying, but it, I think you can ask that question to anyone and we just really have to take a look at what we're doing individually versus, you know, call the group
0: out. Right. So let's turn to actually the, some of the statistics um, around violence in the community of violence mm-hmm. against American Indian and Alaska Native women in particular. So more than four in five American Indian and Alaska Native women, or about 84%, have experienced violence in their lifetime. More than half have experienced sexual violence, and Native women face murderer rates more than 10 times the national average in some counties. Then there are also these, because of the uh, prior to the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act in 2013, there were lots of exacerbated rates with regard to being able to hold accountable people who are the perpetrators. Let's talk about VAWA 2013. Prior to that, can you give some historical context as to Um, what happened if there was an interracial perpetrator and what accountability or lack of accountability, you know, was faced by the victim?
1: Right. Well, I don't even have to go really historically. It's still the case for most tribes. Um, Very few tribes, you know, VAWA started, uh, Violence Against Women's Act started this, um, the ability for tribes to eventually have jurisdiction over non-natives in cases of domestic violence. It was really specific, first of all. You had mentioned, like, how come, you know, jurisdiction, you know, my my cousin's kid could be taken away. Well, that, that wouldn't have been included in VAWA, right? So it's um, very specific to um, domestic violence. So how it works right now, so one of the stats you didn't mention, though, too, is um, so you have, say, the murder rate is 10 times an answer average, or one in three Native women will be raped in her lifetime. Um, 80%. Of the perpetrators are non-native, so I just want to point that out, and that means the communities that aren't able—and that's the majority of Native communities—who aren't able to prosecute those folks. You know, th- those those folks target Native women because they can get away with it. It's it's a it's a sick system. So a woman goes to the police, says I've been raped or beat or whatever it is, and if the police go and it's a non-native, he can literally just sit there. And like, hmm, what do you want, what are you going to do? And the police can't do anything. Uh, tribal police can't do anything. Go off site, say outside the tribal territory, a woman goes to the police. She'd have to trust that the police would even want to do anything. And I'm I'm sure you've talked about it many times on the show about how victims of violence, especially if they're women, will very rarely go to seek police intervention because the rates of, you know, not getting any justice are so high. Um, and that's almost, you know, that, that's exacerbated for women of color. And so especially when you talk about, say, um, non-Native communities that are adjacent to Native communities, what we would call border towns, um, violence against Native people in general, but especially women, is oh, almost like the expectation. I have a kind of an anecdotal story. When I was working as a rape crisis counselor in South Dakota, We would work with um, families and whether it was on specific violence cases or just, you know, sex ed in general, we did quite a range of of services. So we were talking with a mother who came in with her daughter about um, safe sex, essentially, you know, talking about condoms and, you know, talking about consent, right? And um, the, the mom sort of scoffed and was like, you know, I... You know, don't worry about the condom at this point, just sort of, I told her, you know, if she enjoys it, it's, that'll be rare. Like told her just to sit there and take it. And I was like, wait, we're talking about consensual sex, right? Like you should enjoy that. That should be something that is meaningful to you, you know, regardless of who your partner is, blah, blah, blah. And the daughter was just sort of shyly like, I don't know. And the mom, again, just very scoffily sort of brushed that aside of just whatever she's going to be you know, she's just going to have to take it, just lay there. And I was like, what are you talking about? Well, you know, I talk about her, you know, when she gets raped, uh, she just has to, you know, just get over it, you know, just it's going to happen. So you got to, you know, just learn how to deal with it. And, you know, if you can prepare for it, you'll just be that much able to get over it. And it was such a, like, non-subject, non-issue for both her and her daughter that it was just this very shocking place to be to hear you know when rape happens not if and the expectation that it would happen no matter what and that's the experience and that's the reality for native women and that that was that was my home community and it's like it's it's that's what happens when justice isn't the norm and so you know violence against women's act created space for tribes to you know, create their own jurisdictional policies to be able to prosecute non-Native men or people in general, non-Native perpetrators.
0: But it's been very slow in coming. And is not also the, the 2013 reauthorization of awa that includes, that reaffirms the, the tribe's power to prosecute over non-Indian perpetrators? It only includes domestic violence and dating violence. It doesn't include sexual assault, stalking, or trafficking crimes. Right. And so, yeah. so that gap. You have to have some sort of established is huge. relationship.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so it's only, um, I'm looking up uh, here right now, only 20 some tribes. So fewer than 30 tribes. And remember, 573 sovereign nations have this ability eventually, but fewer than 30 have implemented that statute to prosecute non natives. It's expensive. It takes a long time because, uh, ironically, uh, white or non native. Uh, legislators are really fearful that you know white people might be treated unfairly on reservations I don't know why they would think that right it's not like they treat natives unfairly in their justice systems that's sarcasm by the way um, <laughs> and I mean so it's like the it's really there's so much you know red tape for these tribes trying to implement this statute so they can prosecute and it's 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 hard <laughs> it's, I mean um Pascual tribe here in Arizona was one of the first to implement successfully these um statutes and um they became overrun with cases. I mean they had to hire new folks you know c- they couldn't keep up with the cases they were getting and I mean not that that you know th- it's great they have this but man the the infrastructure is just not there to support the need right? And so um you know, something more needs to be done. It's one of those great
0: first steps, but we need more. Yeah, when you were talking about um, that example at the Rape Crisis Center, it reminded me of a story that I did with a um, a man who was uh, sexually... Well, He we started off talking about him being a, a witness to domestic violence of his mom. And then as as the interview continued... Uh, it quickly unfolded that he was also a sexual assault survivor himself and and raped, et cetera and and that this was intergenerational. he He grew up in the south in like Louisiana, Mississippi, I believe, Tennessee and Texas, and how like three generations above him and one generation below him, like all these generations, the women in his family, all of them had experienced incest, you know, and were sexually abused by someone in the family, a male in the family, and they all Expected it. And when it happened, and they responded as parents to their children experiencing it, there was this sort of level of resignation that you said, which I don't know if, I mean, there certainly isn't an impediment of the law, you know, keeping them from being able to take action. Although clearly our, cult, our rape culture right. <laughs> makes it hard to get accountability yeah. through the criminal justice system when you're not believed. Right. Um, but, but when Native women are violated, do the law enforcement in the Native communities, do they believe more? It, it's just that their hands are tied because they're not able to prosecute?
1: I have to hope so. I mean, I would, I mean, I think the justice system is, is um, it's a system, right? And it's a system within colonial frameworks. So it has uh problematic problematic nature i think regardless of the community it's in but i think within tribal communities we have something called the bureau of indian affairs and so our police officers are from the bureau of indian affairs versus say like um you know county police or county highway patrol or whatever it is um so they're usually either of the community or you know a native themselves And I think there might be a little bit more trust. Just to kind of put it in perspective for you, I mentioned that Pasquayaki tribe. So since they started that statute as a pilot program in 2014, the cases involving non-natives have accounted for 25% of its domestic violence violence caseload. And there's been a 10 to 20% hike in operational costs for them. So like, you know, when it comes to believing they're victims, it sounds like they are like they're prosecuting folks, but it's been this huge jump and um, unsustainable. And uh, I mean, they're they're doing what they can, but um, I mean, this is from stats from this year. So,
0: um, you know, there, there's more that definitely needs to be done for sure. And would you, would you say that within the community, there's a greater awareness of rape culture because of, you know, the ways in which they're the community is like doubly, multiply um, oppressed and violated? I'm mm, trying to see how I'm best to answer that. So um,
1: there's a, a, a movement that's been happening since the 90s called Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. It actually originated in Canada where um, there are communities where If you're a native woman, I mean, your chances of survival past, say, teenage year is ridiculously low. And again, it's sort of an expectation. Um, You know, just don't go there if you want to live. You know, don't let the rattlesnake bite you um, if you want to live. So, I mean, it's not a place you want to be. And yet uh, every year they do like a, a march, if you will to remember the missing and murdered indigenous women from that community because it just, it continues to happen. One of the reasons they started this march is because they kept going to authorities to say, you know, my cousin's lost, my sister, my mom, whoever it was is gone missing and nothing would be done. And so it became this, again, expectation of if I take it to the police, it's like they go missing again. So they're missing, you know, from their family. And if they take it to police, it's just going to get Missing among the many files of indigenous women that uh have open cases um try to take it to the media. It's usually downplayed sometimes the fact that she, that women is even indigenous is is totally missing um so you don't even see you know they're they're from this tribal community and this is you know something that they've studied uh even here in the United States and so it's um it mirrors what's happening in Canada but the one of the things they decided to start doing and why missing and murdered indigenous women, hashtag MMIW became or has become at least an in Indian country, um, a very widespread movement of awareness uh, is because they started doing their own justice work. Um, they would dredge up the, the river in that community and sadly find the bodies of their missing women. Um, and they do this every year and it's, you know, it's, that's not a way to live, right like that's not that's not living that's not a good existence um to to have to do your own justice first of all, but also just expect that this violence is going to bring up you know someone's sister or, or mother um cousin, whatever it is and um so I think we've been aware that this lack in justice means either we do it ourselves or you know we just continue to die out i to think of how best to say it, I, I think it's still uh, a movement that has yet to catch on with the uh, the 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 masses, if you will. Um, you know when when the Violence Against Women's Act was um being debated, right? Um, and tribal communities fought to have this statute included to be able to prosecute non-natives, and and had those statistics showing how again, pervasive, you know, the the, the numbers looked, how, how pervasive violence perpetrated by non-natives was. I mean, it was like pulling teeth, right? Look, we're showing you, you know, A equals B here, and, and it, you're not listening. And that was um, something we really had to fight for. And it was only approved because of the pilot program piece. It wasn't something they were going to allow to be widespread immediately, you know, again, for fear that, non-Natives would be treated unfairly in tribal court. And, um, you know, so piecemeal Indian country has been allowed to have its justice taken taken um, seriously. Um, and we're now, when when is that, 2013, 2014? So, I mean, we're almost 2020 here, and um, we still have a long way to go.
0: Yeah, and, you know, the other side of the violence against women and the the violence against the children in terms of the boarding schools that you were talking about is the high rates of foster care, right? So you said about oh, yeah. about 80% of the foster care kids in South Dakota are native kids. And I I was, um, we'll just back that up. It's definitely more than half. Um, I don't know. That's okay. 80. Yeah. Yeah. The okay. 80% is urban natives. Um, oh, yeah, okay. it's definitely I see. more than half of the more kids. Than half. Care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the podcast, I always try to draw analogies and different between different things that are happening and different Mm -hmm. tactics that are being used to exert power and abuse of power. And one of the um, key themes of the podcast is the way in which survivors of domestic violence and children who are being abused or sexually abused are disbelieved in the family courts and the crisis that is happening in family courts where abusers are getting custody and the intergenerational trauma that that causes through the systemic complicity of all the players, and I think this is very similar to the historical trauma that native children have been placed in when they're put into a situation where they're taken away from their homes and families and I was at a conference recently where they just put it so well, why is there child abuse too in the community? Well, because these kids, when they grow up to be adults, they were never parented and so they they never learned how to parent. And I just think that's so heartbreaking and it's similar to what's happening in all of our communities where children and, and women and survivors are being disbelieved and continue that cycle of abuse. And, and so I guess my question is, is there any benefit to working with other groups around these issues and bringing awareness or do you feel like within the Native community It's better to be sort of single issue and like bring awareness to what's happening in indigenous communities because there's just so much going on. And if you, you know, are allied with other issues, it it might confuse things. Um, So, for example, what's happening in the crisis in the borders in, in migrants and refugees? Like, is there a benefit to drawing analogies with what's happening there and the historical uh, oppression of children in the community.
1: I think there's always a place for solidarity. Um, I th- think it's, it's Audrey Lord, some really cool thinker who I can't remember the quote, had a fantastic way to look at it as, you know, there's no such thing as a single issue platform, right? Like mm-hmm. as, as just a human being, you don't live single issue life. Right. So everything sort of confluences toward your identity. Right. And that's from multiple sources. So within indigenous communities, missing and murdered indigenous women goes into language revitalization, goes into, um, you know, anti-oil protesting, goes into, you know, um, getting our kids out of foster care um, or, or even like um, the disparities within incarceration. Like all that's connected. It's all connected. Um, and, you know, you mentioned, you know, other groups. I think, you know, natives have a, a long track record of participating with other groups in terms of that solidarity piece, um, you know, to the benefit of that group. And I, I think the biggest example of that, and we're talking today on what's known as Veterans Day in the United States, um, you know, natives have the highest rates of enlistment and service of any racial group. And that's been just historically the case. And that was even before we were citizens of the United States or in World War II. And so, like, those factors have made, I think, lots of allies maybe recognize our our issues. Maybe with a little bit more gusto, sometimes, not all the time. And I think social media has been a big player in that. So, as a, for instance, um, you know, Mauna Kea and Hawaii is a big um, piece that's gathering a lot of um, non-Native attention, but it's a huge issue. Um, It's uh, the telescope, um, the largest telescope that's trying to be built on a sacred mountain that already has dozens of telescopes on it. Uh, What's one more? And the Hawaiians have um, been fighting this issue for decades, 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 and really haven't been listened to. But um, post-Standing Rock, Indigenous issues, um, and Standing Rock being, as a reminder for your listeners, the the place of um, the no Dakota Access Pipeline protests, um, which gathered just, I think, um, unprecedented level of support from across the world, really. Um, and and a big again, the biggest piece of that was social media. We were getting our own stories out, um, but also like something like Standing Rock. You know, goes to your point, Terry, about that solidarity piece. I mean, there was there were groups from Black Lives Matter. There were you know, groups of, of veterans that came. You know, groups of um, um, you know environmental activists. You know, not necessarily having been concerned with, say, indigenous specific issues, but recognizing that there was a place for their own movements within this space, and it really you know gathered a lot of folks to the cause. Um, but um, you know, here and you know, and I think that sort of goes to the the discussion of like, say, urban native living. So here in Phoenix, um, we, um, the Otham people, Otham and Pipash people, who are the uh, original caretakers of this land, their sister tribe is Tahana Otham. And it's a tribe that has land both north and south of the United States border. And it's one of the few places that could have a huge impact, a real impact on that that wall that wants to, that, that 45 wants to build, um, because they, he wouldn't be allowed to put it on the sovereign territory. Um, and it's a place where, um, you know, the, the native people, indigenous people there, um, speak, uh, you know, both Autumn and in sp- Spanish, um, and have customs of both uh, places. Um, it, it's uniquely their own. But you know, if you were, say, Mexican, you would notice, say, elements of Mexican culture within within those traditions, as well as Autumn. You know, on the U.S. side, you would say, "Oh, that's something that's done in Northern Arizona too." I think that's really kind of a beautiful example of, you know, how our issues are everyone's issues. Especially when you talk about like, say violence against women or, or violence against the land, because if it's happening to us, um, we're just a microcosm of what's possible for everyone else. And uh, if you can't stop it here, where can you stop it?
0: Let's talk about your your work. You are a writer and you're a visual artist, uh, you're a photographer. What are the ways in which you've actually seen impact from? using art as a form of educating the public about indigenous issues?
1: Sure. So I consider myself a storyteller just because I think all those things you mentioned go into telling the story of how my existence happens every day. So I mentioned social media. I was, I don't know if thrust is a good word, but I was put into um, sort of a viral spotlight once um uh, Johnny Depp's The Lone Ranger came out um, in, um, I think it was like 2012, maybe 2013-ish. I think it was 2012 or 2011, one of those. And um, I was just so um, grossed out by this uh, this blatant racism and cultural appropriation happening. And, and it, it always happens in Hollywood, but it was just such a, like, at to Johnny Depp, like, I you know, when you consider yourself an ally and you call yourself an ally, but we've had so many examples of that not being the case, especially, you know, lately. But um, at the time it was kind of heartbreaking, very heartbreaking. So I wrote a poem on my blog, which, you know, heretofore had only been read by, say, family members and like close friends and maybe some stalkers. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. That's not something you could about, but people who, you know, it wasn't a very popular blog. It was just more of my um, digital diary, if you will. So I wrote a poem that uh, got picked up by quite a few places. Um, And really, because Indigenous perspectives aren't, I mean, you mentioned yourself, I'm the first Native on your podcast. Like, it's not something that I think folks intentionally go towards just because there's so few of us. Um, It's not the first thing you think about when you think of, say, a big issue that's happening. Well, what do Native people think about this? Chances are we have lots and just don't really come to us first. So that this movie, you know, was dealing with say one of the most famous, um, stereotypes of native people and, in Tonto and my poem, uh, uh, went, I mean, millions of people read it and, um, was asked just from that poem alone, I was presented with several areas to write about indigenous perspectives. And I had been, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been a, a news reporter, um, and a freelancer for the last fifteen years, um, daily news publications, magazines. But that was the first time I'd ever really been recognized for like the artistic side of my writing. Sort of a, a closet poet, if you will. And so that was really empowering. But also, I felt like it was one of the first times my writing had like a a broader impact, um, especially when it came to say cultural appropriation, like, oh, someone's listening to me about how, Maybe we should get some Native actors or maybe there should be Native directors and Native storytellers who wouldn't, you know, perpetrate these kinds of uh, harmful images, which, again, lead into, you know, the stereotypes of, say, a warrior, you know, Native, you know, who is tough and, you know, can kill things. And and that might translate later to, uh, you know, well... Violence against just Native people in general because of that warrior stereotype, and you know that goes into like the hypersexualization of Native people. Pocahontas being one of those um, bigger stereotypes, um, bigger um, images. I think a lot of people in general have of Native women, um, you know, and that that feeds right into that, that conversation of violence against just Indigenous people. So I think that's that's been you know social media really um, was the catalyst. And getting that
0: artistic storytelling of mine out there. So that actually generated a lot of eyeballs and awareness of the issue. Do you know if it actually was there something measurable in terms of people demanding action with regard to retracting the movie, the film, or getting Johnny Depp to respond or uh, anything (laughs) that came from that poem? you know, um, apologize. No.
1: <laughs> I wish. Um, so, and it's funny, I'm laughing only really because like it was this year that, uh, Johnny Depp was in the Christian Dior campaign for sauvage perfume, um, which had just, again, gross native stereotypes. I mean, you know, and a an an word like Savage, right? No matter how much the French translation doesn't look like savage. I mean, that's what it looks like. And that's the word we see because that's the land we're on, right? That's the land that was, forcibly taken from uh, indigenous people because we were savages. We didn't know how to take care of this land. So, um, no, I mean, I wouldn't say my, my poem backfired, but I don't think it's been the um, the ethically beneficial uh, catalyst for Johnny Depp as I as I would have liked. He had also at that time, and part of my poem mentioned this, had had promised to buy back land in Pine Ridge, that place we mentioned before, um, which is the site of uh, Wounded Knee Massacre. And so at the time, there the person who owns that land a non-Native was selling it. And because of its historical value, it was able to ask an exorbitant amount for land that really wouldn't have been worth that much just as land itself. So Johnny Depp came through and was like, I going to buy this land and give it back to the native people in a very white savior type way. Um, and so it was just like, stop while you're ahead. Well, you're not really ahead, but just stop in general. But in terms of, you mentioned the eyes upon us, you know, um, social media again, and not necessarily that poem itself, but, um, you know, my poem was one of say many arrows that have been flying for decades regarding misrepresentation of natives in pop culture, um, from sports to movies to, uh, even politics. Right. So, um, I think the arrow that I shot, uh, within that conversation, um, you know, had impact on some folks. I think, you know, I still get emails from people who are like, Oh, you know, I was thinking about dressing up as, you know, Indian for Halloween, but, uh, you know, I read your thing. And so I don't think I will, you know, and they're looking for a pat on the back and I usually try to give it to them because I think in the long, you know, in the grand scheme of things people are trying, but um, it's also like, wow, that that's such an old article. And we're still talking about, about Indian costumes at Halloween. like, who. Um, so again, we're just such a small drop in the bucket when it comes to population that the conversations about us happen, uh, in such small uh, ways that, um, having this big, big impact, um, you know, something I think a lot of us, at least within this, um, theme that we're talking about with, you know, um, appropriation or even just images of natives, um, a big step we would love to see is the, uh, the removal of native mascots in sports. Uh, the Washington football team would be. I mean, if that that team changed their name and changed their mascot, I think a lot of folks who have been fighting the same issue again for decades, long before I wrote a poem, uh, would you know just cry with with gratefulness because that's that's what we've been asking for for, well, since the team started. Um, and and so. Yeah, I think I'm just one of many, um, but I but I feel like that's been a help, and that goes back into I mentioned before, like the role of Two Spirit that I um, try to embody um, in a way that's helpful to my community, whether that's my specific tribal community or Indian Country as a whole, or even just you know I mean, not being racist helps non-natives too, right? Like, um, you know, it's it's good for everyone not to be racist and not to have these um, bigoted ideas. And so um, if I can help that one person decide not to dress up as an Indian for for
0: Halloween, I, I feel like that's a
1: success and I have to hope it is.
0: Yeah, I, I you know, I've heard recently on the radio, I was catching a, the end of a story about um, how some news stations across the country are being more deliberate in trying to hire Native writers um, yes. so that they can tell their own stories and have that sensibility um, and a different lens of being you know, from the inside ex- instead of from the outside looking in. And that also, just the other day, actually, I was watching a film with a friend, a white friend, a woman who I would, I would characterize as not being particularly fluent in the language of <laughs> racial justice and Very gender justice. Yeah. And she, she and I were watching American Son and she would not have watched that film had, had I not suggested it. This Netflix <laughs> film that, you know, with Kerry Washington who co-produced yep. it. And it came from, I think they co-produced it with this organization called the Opportunity Agenda, which is a social justice communication lab. Cool. and they use storytelling as a way to activate people um to engage in social justice either movements or action and and change uh and so i just think that you know that is such a great example of how storytelling can be really provocative mm-hmm. because every moment of that film it came it was originally a play on broadway but every moment of that film was pregnant with, you know, nuance and meaning and embodied the story that I think was so universal and why, why they named it ultimately the American son, because this black child belongs to all of us. And, and he's American first beyond his race. And I similarly with native people, we're all first people. And, and so to the extent that um, that was effective. I'm wondering, like, do you have any projects in the works that you'd like to share um, that we can look for?
1: I do. So, fierce was the first, uh, my first, say, published in a book piece. So, it was an anthology with um, I was 13 stories and fantastic stories. First of all, I really was um, felt blessed and honored to be part of that project. But it was the first time that my stories had been part of like a book, like you could hold. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I've been published many, many times over, um, but not in a book form, uh, you know, outside of like academic books. Um, so now I have my first actual full length book coming out this time next year. So, uh, we're talking in November. So it'll be November, 2020 it's scheduled to come out native American heritage month, just based on, you know, thematics and, best practices for, uh, you know, advertising, things like that. But it's called Thunder Thighs and Trickster Vibes. And it's um, looking at how to reclaim and be a better relative in the age that we're in. So relative Lakota have a saying called Mitakyo And it's literally translated into all my relations or we're all related, depending on context. And it's a really beautiful concept of just recognizing that being a relative, being a good relative can be within all of our actions if we're inter- intentional and purposeful about it. But the phrase itself has just been so appropriated <laughs> um, in different uses. I mean, it's some someone sneezes or eats some food and it's bitakyasen. And it's like kind of an all-encompassing blessing, if you will. And not that that's a bad thing, but it sort of just kind of loses its power once it's like overused in that way. Um, and so I'm just kind of re-looking at well, what is it what does it look like you know we talked about that urban native experience how do how do i use that in my everyday experience say being separated from my traditional homelands or my traditional ceremonies how can i bring that that concept of mitakoyasan into my everyday life and so just sort of strategizing um you know by looking at things like violence against women or by um, language revitalization or just even indigenous parenthood indigenous love right queer two-spiritness and all those feed into one another we mentioned that confluence so um I also talk about um you know, say body positivity I live and experience the world as a fat woman and that's um because I present as a uh, feminine um though I don't use that as my pronoun but it's um how does how does that impact me and how does it impact me as an indigenous person so that's where the thunder thighs gets in there but um I uh I'm excited about it because it's,
0: um, it's a project of love for sure. And so this is a nonfiction book? Nonfiction, correct. Okay. And it's, is it a guidebook mainly for the Native community or is it for, like would you feel like it's kind of like akin to, Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. It's like for everyone. How to be, you know, in community for everyone in particular. Well, I want
1: everyone to buy it. My audience, intended audiences, uh, uh, other Indigenous folks, though. It's the book I needed when I was a kid. How about that?
0: Okay. And are you planning on going on a book tour? Because I would love to see you and Ooh, yay, read it right? in yeah. person.
1: Um, I will let my publisher know that you need to see me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're still doing the drafts here, um, but they've been pre-selling it. So I think there's a couple places online that are pre-selling But um, I I don't have a schedule yet for that. Uh, I imagine um, next November will be a a whirlwind, which I'm excited for, though. That's um, what a great time to talk about it. Uh, It is uh, Native American Heritage Month.
0: Well, we've come to the point in our conversation where I have a set of questions that I ask every guest of mine. Mm -hmm. I've adapted the Inside the Actors Studio questionnaire for the Engendered questionnaire. First question what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? The future.
1: My uh, In Lakota, we have a concept of seventh generations. Uh, so you live your life today with the knowledge that everything you do will impact the years to come, seven generations from now. And that's even more poignant to me as a mother. I have a 10-year-old. She's... 11-year-old, ooh, almost got in trouble there. Um, I'm an 11-year-old now, and that, while that was always something I strove for, you know, in my work as a journalist, in my work as a social justice advocate, now that I have somebody who is also responsible for generations beyond themselves, um, I have to be thinking of things like, how, how do I stop anti oil interests? How do I vote in a way that's um, productive, down the road, right? Not just for today. So, talking about ending gender violence is, um, that's, I need that to end because my, I mean, I'm gonna be an ancestor someday, and if uh my, if my uh, relatives down the line can't look back and say I did nothing, that's, um, that's on me, and I, that's not something I'm willing to to let go.
0: What gives you hope?
1: So many things. Every day. I... I think conversations like this right now give me hope. um I think I don't think we give ourselves enough credit for some of the little things that happen that can be impactful down the road, whether that's mentoring or a conversation or a movie that you watch with somebody. um how can those little moments um grow into something more and that's again looking from um you know just just a perspective of a of a future ancestor. But also, like, you know, somebody who has um, kids coming, coming up in the world who are going to make their world even better. That gives me so much hope. I see so much um, potential and so much not just potential, but just active participation in our young people. Um, I work, uh, like I mentioned, for um, the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community, the Atam and Pipash people here. And uh, I work with um, the education system, and I get to every day be by, young people who are fighting for justice and the multiple ways that that can be done. And I just am so jazzed (laughs) to see what this world looks like uh, when they're making the
0: decisions. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression?
1: I think it starts with, again, the little things. Speaking specifically to, say, the violence indigenous people face starts with super easy stuff like, you know, ending the misrepresentation the blatant racism against us uh, using stereotypes. Um, As a, for instance, that same school district I work for, the girls volleyball team had an incident uh in the playoffs where fans from the other team started calling them savages and mocking them with a war whoop gesture the the putting your hand to your your palm to your mouth and making a sound reminiscent of uh old hollywood movies westerns and that's today that that was a couple weeks ago um so very recently this isn't something that's you know again the old wild west this is phoenix arizona in 2019 where um those same kids i have so much hope in are still perpetrating violence uh i mean it's it's and it's small it starts with something small like a word and something small like a gesture something small like a sports mascot or or a um a word on a jersey and if we can't we have to stop using the those words, those harmful, that harmful language, when someone tells us to, um, right, that that's pretty much the the bare minimum of being a, a good, a good human being is uh, someone tells you that you're hurting them. You stop that behavior. But when, say, women have told men to stop, uh, you know, harassing them as they walk down the street or judging them for the clothes they're wearing or when Native women have said, uh, you know, stop. Killing us, right? Uh, Or, you know, stop using our images on the side of your sports, your helmets, um, or in your gymnasiums, because that translates in your subconscious as objectivity, right? Something that you can own and do whatever you want with. Well, we've asked you to stop, you haven't. And it's such an easy, easy thing to do that I promise won't cause the end of the world. (laughs) Your sports team will still. Washington, uh, without that name, um, but not having that name could really be the the, the starting point for Indian um, violence in Indian country. Um, so stop doing that. I think we need to start listening <laughs> uh, to to uh, the the marginalized voices, um, and and not just start listening, but like actively seeking them out. I went to a classroom a couple weeks ago. Um, this is a little kids' classroom, a little Montessori classroom of uh, you know upper elementary kids, um, and we talked about the misrepresentation of native people. It was Columbus Day and um, man, they got it. Oh, did they they understood when I talked about um, you know uh, the the fact that the books they read don't have native people in it, right? All of them were able to say, yeah, I'm reading this book and it doesn't have a native person or I read that book last time and it didn't have me. And so it's really easy to say, just sit back with every, everything you do, whether you know it's the media you consume or the conversations you're having, and ask whose perspective isn't being um, noted here. For myself as an individual, I'm I'm really working on trying to be. Um, less ableist, because that's something I, it's hard for me to admit to, but, um, using ableist language, um, has really been a a problem for me. Um, and again, you know, however unintentional I might be, I still impact those, that, that community, um, when I use things like, you know, let's march for justice, right? Why can't I just say show up for justice? Um, really, really simple language switches. And that took me seeking out, And then listening to and incorporating um, those perspectives. Um, It's not necessarily, it's not hard, first of all, um, to do this, but it is hard to make that habit change um, at the outset, but totally worth it in the end. Well, those are great ideas.
0: Thank you so much, Tate, for joining us on our show today.
1: Thank you. I had a really
0: good time. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.